as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The Radio Hour is a project of Veterans for Peace Chapter 168, Louisville, Kentucky, broadcast on Forward Radio, WFMP-LP, Louisville 106.5 FM. This program is also available on the Forward Radio website in streaming and podcast form at forwardradio.org. That's all lowercase and no spaces. Veterans for Peace is an international organization dedicated to building a culture of peace. We are military veterans, family members, and allies. We accept veteran members from all branches and all eras of service. Veterans for Peace has been exposing the true costs of war since 1985. As veterans, we work to heal the world and ourselves through our commitment to peace. That may seem like a tall order, maybe impossible, even ludicrous. But we must keep in mind that every journey begins with the first step. Please join us on our journey. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. My name is John Wilburn, and I will be your host. Today's program content is taken from the book Patriotic Descent, subtitle America in the Age of Endless War by Daniel Sherson spelled S-J-U-R-S-E-N. Sherson is a retired U.S. Army major who served combat tours with reconnaissance units in Iraq and Afghanistan and later taught history at his alma mater, West Point. The book was published in 2020. In the prologue, Sherson writes that Americans today live in an age of dull overadulation of their soldiers. They don't, the vast majority of them, want to actually join any of the military services. That would be hard, inconvenient, and, after decades of indeterminate wars, potentially dangerous. But almost obsessively thanking service members and veterans for their service serves three purposes. The first is a feeling of deep-seated obligation, maybe, to right the perceived wrong regarding how the last generation of service members from the Vietnam War were treated. However, serious scholars have long noted the significant exaggeration of the, quote, spitting image, unquote, of Vietnam veteran treatment, the notion that most were literally spit on upon return. The second motivation for the often, though not always, empty gratitude is a sense of conscious soothing embarrassment. Most Americans know full well that less than 1% of their fellow citizens serve on active duty, and that they themselves chose not to do so. While by no means an accusatory slander, this is a simple, if uncomfortable, truth. Considered a fact of life in a society that decided some 50 years ago to ditch 
its usual tradition of citizen soldiering in times of large or extended wars, and opted for an apparent all-volunteer, professionalized standing military. In such a culture as America's in the first decades of the 21st century, quote, thanking veterans at sporting events, airports, or local chain restaurants feels in the gut of the self-selected civilian like the right or at least the requisite thing to do. Finally, the societal veneer of what now truly amounts to soldier worship is driven by another prominent factor. Americans have been told to do so. Remember what then-President George W. Bush told the nation's citizenry soon after the 9-11 attacks and just as he unleashed the U.S. military on an expansive series of ultimately forever wars? Not that they must collectively sacrifice or flood their respective recruiting stations, but, quote, get down to Disney World in Florida, take your families, and enjoy life, unquote. The military only modestly grew in size over the ensuing years, and even when some 200,000 service members were deployed to combat zones at the height of the Iraq and Afghan wars, income taxes were never raised, conscription was never considered, and instead the same professional, quote, warriors, unquote, simply served tour after tour in harm's way. This, what Surgeon has described, is what generally accounts for, quote, patriotism, unquote. Thank the troops, love America, pay your historically modest taxes, and keep your mouth shut. Nothing is being asked of you, materially or physically, so just politely champion the soldiers, wave a flag, and support the foreign policies of what's obviously compared to those evil terrorists over there, a reasonably well-intentioned government. Only there's a catch. Step outside those lines, take a rare interest in the nation's wars, and then, well, get ready to reap the whirlwind. Expect derogatory labels like un-American, traitor, and, or the latest favorite, Russian asset. Without prompt and widespread citizen action, this cult of idle patriotism constitutes, slowly but surely, an existential threat for the health of the Republic. Sherson will seek to explain why that is and what can be done to reframe dissent against empire and endless war as the truest form of patriotism. The horror, the futility, the farce of the war in Iraq was the turning point in Sherson's life. It was then, at age 24, when he landed home, that he knew that war was at least built on lies. Ill-advised, unwinnable, illegal, and immoral. This unexpected, undesired realization created profound doubts in him about the course and nature of the entire American enterprise in the greater Middle East what was then labeled the Global War on Terror, or GWOT. Wasn't it absurd for a foreign nation to declare war on a tactic? Furthermore, 
if the majority of a regular of regular Iraqi folks he met regretted on some level the departure of Saddam and agreed that life had been, as was empirically true, safer, less chaotic under his rule, might the same be said about the other U.S. military enterprises in the region? When Sherson headed home on December 31, 2007, after his Iraq tour, American troops already occupied hundreds of military bases in dozens of countries. U.S. soldiers killed, died, and propped up shaky regimes from West Africa to Central Asia. Not a single one of those missions has of yet succeeded, nor did victory seem close at hand in any one of them. For the most part, every U.S. military adventure in this troubled expanse had been highly counterproductive. State Department statistics indicated, undeniably, that global terror attacks and the proliferation of Islamist rebel groups had both exponentially increased since American troops had begun to enter, had begun to enter the region in full force. After stewing over all this for a year or so, Churchill entered his new unit secretly opposed to the entire global war on terror. Despite this, Churchill remained loyal to the army, or at least his own unit. His theory then was that, quote, good, unquote, people needed to stay in the service, if for no other reason than to protect their subordinates, shield them as much as possible from the madness, and bring as many of these kids home from the next inevitable deployment. When he entered Kandahar province, Afghanistan, in February 2011, Shershin no longer believed in anything the U.S. was doing. The truth is, Shershin writes, he was by then simply a professional soldier, a mercenary really, on a mandatory mission he couldn't avoid. Three more of his soldiers died, 30 plus were wounded, including a triple amputee, and another overdosed on pain medicines after their return. Sherson had dreamed that if he stayed in the army, he would return to West Point to teach history. So he applied for the rather competitive assignment, and while still in Kandahar, and was accepted. The next stop was graduate school at the University of Kansas. There he studied American and military history with a minor of sorts in imperial history. It was during this stint in a scholarly state that Shershin learned the necessary language and framework to ground his own doubts about in opposition to U.S. foreign policy. The failures of the global war on terror, it became clear, were just part of the tragedy of American global relations, a historical record of debacle and deceit. The United States was, from the first, an imperial enterprise. Insurgent had been carrying water for that empire during his time in Iraq and Afghanistan. It all clicked. All seemed so evident. Why then didn't the average American see it, think it, believe it? Such things weren't taught in public school or in most college majors. The trick 
for the owners of the country, the corporate tycoons, the media moguls, and the politicians they controlled, was how to hide an empire, how to convince the populace that their government's noticeable empire was anything but, that the U.S. policy of global hegemony was a benevolent enterprise, the price of peace, that America was, as so many politicians repeatedly declared, quote, exceptional, unquote. indispensable nation, unquote. This hoodwinking conspiracy required, demanded, a whitewashing of America's historical record of native genocide, black slavery, the aggressive Mexican-American war, conquest and suppression of the Philippines, murderous campaigns in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, and now the counterproductive bloodletting in the greater Middle East. The U.S. Military Academy at West Point is hardly an institution that simply indoctrinates automatons. It is a serious academic body. Should one choose a liberal arts major and approach class seriously, West Point provides not just a free education, but a remarkable one. Shershon taught in the American History Division of the Department of History then under the enlightened stewardship of the respected Vietnam War scholar, Colonel Gregory Davis. Under his leadership, instructors were coached to apply the up-to-date knowledge received in graduate school, pursue continuing education, and teach our cadets according to the cutting-edge scholarly trends in civilian academia. He also gave uh, enormous independence latitude, and room to experiment. So it was that Shershon brought his own dissent, coupled with the prevailing framework and analysis of academia, into the classroom for the future officer students at the U.S. Military Academy. He taught them what a consensus of serious historians has long believed that the English colonies, colonies and their successor, the United States of America, constituted a settler colonial empire from the first, built on the displacement, by its very nature, and destruction of the native peoples. The nation these cadets would soon serve was at the very outset and still defined by four core characteristics. Racism, genocide, classism, and continental followed by overseas imperialism. There was, as one might expect, some initial and in some cases semester-long, pushback from the largely upper-middle-class, hyper-patriotic, in the traditional sense, cadets. Nonetheless, Shershon was pleasantly surprised by his ability to reach them, to elicit astute questions, 
and cultivate critical thinking. By the end of each semester, he never ceased to be amazed by their collective progress towards intellectual curiosity and their ability to think outside their philosophical comfort zones. After his tour as a history instructor, Sherson rotated back to the regular Army to an assignment at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. After the fervent intellectual stimulation of graduate school in West Point and the raw excitement of daily teaching, the death by PowerPoint, checklist-based, formulaic, rote memorization of most learning at the Command and General Staff College was a profound letdown. Sherson needed an outlet for the thoughts, doubts, and dissent swirling in his head. So he began to pen relatively short articles critical of U.S. foreign policy over the last several decades, especially since the 9-11 attacks. But getting outlets to print his soon prolific pieces was a struggle, and he didn't hear back from anyone for months. Then, Tom Englehart, a legendary editor formerly of Pantheon Books, reached out and, with significant editing and toning down, published Sherson's work at his own website, Tom Dispatch. From that day in early 2017 until his medical retirement on February 11, 2019, he wrote and published over 150 articles for dozens of publications. Sometimes he followed the regulations and ran the pieces by the base public affairs officer. Other times, mainly because his office couldn't keep up with his output, he didn't bother. He hardly cared any longer. He was too far down the path to dissent, too disgusted with the waste in blood, ours and theirs, and treasure of America's forever wars to play by the polite rules of the game. just couldn't square the contradictions at the root of his experience. By day, he takes part in and often leads mock planning sessions for executing wars with Iran. By night, he reads and writes about the waste, counterproductivity, and impossibility of the U.S. military's real-world wars in context as insane as the daily play sessions. Most senior military leaders don't read critical analyses of U.S. policy, and Shershin flew under the radar for quite some time, being fervently and confidently anti-war and expressing as much publicly while still on active duty was often a gloomy state of being. Perhaps he was secretly hoping to get caught. And he was. Eventually, an anonymous retiree snitched on him with the call to the Fort Leavenworth Inspector General's office. This set off a grueling, stressful, and scary four-month investigation during which he was put on a no-publication order. He stood to lose his job, pension, and benefits. No matter how much you sacrifice for the bureaucratic army beast, the institution will turn on you on a dime when you become an inconvenience. In 
In any event, it all worked out. Though an investigating officer found Churchin guilty of violating the regulation against publishing words, quote, contemptuous of the President of the United States, unquote, Churchin had correctly declared it was clear that nepotism was to be a defining feature of the Trump presidency. He received the minimum penalty, a verbal admonishment. Soon after, a bit too coincidentally, his team of medical health professionals determined that his PTSD and co-occurring diagnoses qualified him for an early medical retirement with full benefits at the rank of major, which was just fine with Sherson. In the years since, Sherson has lifted his voice, literally daily, against the empire for which he once and long dutifully carried water. In the process, he's traded his identity as a soldier, the only identity he had known in his adult life, for that of an anti-war, anti-imperialist, social justice crusader. He's redefined his descent as a truer patriotism, a love of country more deep and nuanced than the vacuous traditional definitions allow for. Patriotism is one of those rather difficult words to define, to nail down in any agreed-upon way. Merriam-Webster now defines patriotism simply as, quote, love for and devotion to one's country, unquote. Furthermore, this dictionary lists nationalism as a synonym for patriotism. A basic grasp of modern world history demonstrates the extraordinary differences between simple patriotism and the far more superiority typically inherent in nationalism. After all, most serious historians agree that nationalism in the 19th and the 20th century centuries was responsible for the preponderance and the bloodiest of European and global wars. The dictionary defines nationalism as, quote, loyalty and devotion to a nation, unquote. Loyalty as opposed to love for its definition of patriotism. These are not the same sentiments. Is it not possible to love something or someone, yet due to its or their bad behavior, not demonstrate blind or reflexive loyalty to that entity? Furthermore, Merriam-Webster provides, contrary its entry on patriotism, an extended definition for nationalism that raises further issues with labeling the two systems synonyms. Below its main definition for nationalism, the dictionary adds, especially a sense of national consciousness exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interest as opposed to those of other nations or supranational groups, unquote. This, too, is rather different from a simple love and devotion to country. Rather, nationalism, according to this construction, an accurate one, implies an acclamation, almost lionization of one's country above other sovereign states. What's more, the single example provided by the dictionary, 
as if to prove Sherson's point about the warlike perils of nationalism, for the use of the term in its sentence is intense nationalism was one of the causes of the war. The point is that patriotism and nationalism are not the same thing, and no official mutually agreed upon definition of patriotism exists today, nor did one in the past. This having been demonstrated beyond a reasonable doubt, why then should the contemporary generation of Americans, in an age of endless war, accept the simplistic and constrictive bounds of patriotism as so often currently defined? The definition of patriotism as constituting, for the vast majority of Americans, less than five-tenths of a per percent actually serve in the all-volunteer active-duty military, little more than the self-conscious public display of thanks to veterans and, besides occasional first responders, only military veterans, is an even newer phenomenon than the term nationalism itself. This empty culture of thanks has truly gotten out of hand because taking this veritable soldier worship to the level society has in the 21st century can be perilous to the, to the Republic. Some of this gratuitous adulation is sincere and well-meaning. Unfortunately, it doesn't serve the soldier or veteran particularly well. It doesn't change his or her life, doesn't stymie the record 22 veteran suicides a day, or slow the pace of multiple deployments in, the, in indecisive and ill-defined wars for the active trooper. Nonetheless, many of us in the military and veteran communities would gladly trade 90% of the inordinate thanks for an engaged citizenry concerned with and educated in foreign affairs. For the war machine, driven as it is by a profit-motivated military-industrial complex fronted by arms-dealing defense contractors, counts on, requires collective public apathy. True, active citizens who read the global news daily, think critically about America's role in the world, and the prudence or prospects of U.S. military operations War machine doesn't want that, yet that's what this country's soldiers and veterans deserve. What they patently don't want is to be ignored between the thanks or to be shuffled around the greater Middle East from one hopeless war to another by an unchecked president or an indifferent Congress like so many toy soldiers or chess pieces. Want to genuinely support America's veterans? Pay attention, watch how you vote, and create fewer of them. In a post-draft, all-volunteer military in an age of endless war, the vast majority of the citizenry has divorced attentiveness to America's wars or even basic knowledge about them, from their definition of patriotism. So in 2020, 
19 years into America's longest period of continuous warfare, three basic conceptions of patriotism exist. The first is what Sertian calls pageantry patriotism, primarily focused on self-conscious displays of gratitude and ceremonies. It sadly best matches modern American culture in this materialistic millennial age. This is the patriotism of flags, parades, anthems, pledges of allegiance, yellow ribbons, and vapid thanks. The beauty of it is that it is worn as a badge of honor, a point of pride, but requires no work, no critical thinking, no engagement with current events or inconvenient facts. It is a feeling, first and foremost. Patriotism is thereby simple, instinctual, reflexive. In this fame framework, pageant patriotism can also be combative. Pageant patriots take as a starting point not just that support for any and all American wars and support for the troops therein engaged, are nearly synonymous, but that the former is actually requisite for the latter. Pageant patriots define their own patriotism as much as by opposition to alleged non-patriots as by any positive sense of what they're for. This has, in the past and even today, manifested itself through such pugnacious phrases as Quote, America, love it or leave it, unquote. Pageantry patriotism is thus as much about exalting itself above others. As such, it serves as a cudgel for the self-styled patriot to wield against real or perceived ideological enemies, usually some imagined conglomeration of traitors, communists, hippies, Muslims, immigrants, and just basic liberals. These are the folks who were up in arms shocked by National Football League quarterback Colin Kaepernick's decision to kneel in protest of racially charged police brutality during the playing of the National Anthem. For them, another's failure to cohere with the pageantry patriots' preferred nationalist dogma is judged a personal and public threat. The next most common contemporary construction of American patriotism is what Scherzen passively principled patriotism. Most pre prevalent on the centrist political right and the establishment democratic left, this version is often equally surface level but less combative and usually tinged with at least some hint of complexity. These folks still either subscribe to it in these intolerant times of endless war, have acquiesced to most of the dog and pony shows in obligatory thanks associated with pageantry patriotism, but they at least like to believe they support America and its troops well because they do good. This is what the U.S. is, or at least has been and should aspire to be again, a force for good in the world. Passively principled patriots 
unlike the pure pageantry crowd, may not always support the government in power, especially if it is conservative Republican, or agree with the prudence of some of its particular wars, but for the most part they limit their opposition to muted complaints, ad hominem attacks on a particular political leader, and voting out that figure, all within the constraints of the established two-party system. Passive patriots are fearful patriots. They're terrified of the ready pejorative attacks from pageantry patriots. They remember well the Cold War and the incessant slights brandished against those not deemed patriotic enough in the public political space. Un-American. Soft on communism and weak on defense. Never again has been their mantra ever since. If necessary, they will out-patriot the pageantry patriots. Thus, when 9-11 occurred and the, quote, war on terror, unquote, began, they were ready as could be to join the mandatory hyperagulation of the troops' culture, and when some of those wars, mainly Iraq, went bad, and they either truly opposed them or saw a political opportunity in false opposition, old school, in the streets, Vietnam-era protest was out of the question. That would have been too risky, open them to attack. No, the passive patriots play it safe, stay between the lines, and work, always work, within the existing system. For their sins, the troops in the Republic have suffered mightily. The final, least common form of patriotism, and the one to which Shershan unapologetically subscribes and hopes to reframe for the mainstream, is what he calls participatory principled patriotism, or patriotic descent. It is a patriotism grounded in the more idealistic aspects of Noel Webster's 1828 definition, which defines patriotism as, quote, love of one's country, the passion which aims to serve one's country either in defending it from invasion or protecting its rights and maintaining its laws and institutions in vigor and purity. Patriotism is the characteristic of a good citizen, the noblest passion that animates a man in the character of a citizen. This definition places maintenance of America's aspirational values, laws, rights, and institutions over the easy obvious requirement to defend one one's country's borders. It is a patriotism that takes seriously the soldiers and officers' oath to, quote, support and defend, unquote, the Constitution of the United States. Participatory patriotism isn't new. It has a long, proud history. Politicians, artists, and veterans alike have, across the centuries, pushed back when the majoritarian tide too often acquiesced to hegemonic and civil liberty squelching phases in American foreign and domestic policy.
Still, it is a dangerous path to embark upon. One's combat veteran status will not save him or her. Take the case of former Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard, a serving U.S. Army major, a Iraq War veteran, and Democratic presidential candidate for 2020, her unshakable anti-war stance earned her exactly what? Vitriol and slander, and not just from social media trolls, mainstream media pundits, serious national newspapers, and famous political figures, thank Hillary Clinton, labeled her a Russian asset, a Vladimir Putin apologist, even un-American. As Martin Luther King Jr. observed in 1967, when he finally publicly opposed the Vietnam War, dissent, even today, is all too often equated with disloyalty. Dissent always, but especially within the military, is a dangerous game. Far easier to subscribe to pageantry patriotism or to hedge one's bet and be a vaguely liberal passive patriot. These are risk-free, consequence-free ways to live. They are also cowardly and detrimental to the dream of an inclusive, humble, example-setting America, quote, a more perfect union, unquote. All of this is to say that popular conceptions of patriotism, at least in the current post-9-11 forever war American setting, have lost their way. Patriotism has come to mean little more than supporting the nation's troops. Not only is this semantically problematic, but it also robs the term, and more important, the powerful sentiment of its weighty meaning and citizen obligations. Dissent is multifaceted. It can be based on domestic concerns, and it often is. For our purpose here, we will focus on anti-imperialist, anti-stupid war dissent. The first strand of dissent is prophetic. It involves a strong religious overtone in which the dissenter critiques American policy as having strayed from the Puritan version of the nation as a model society for the world to emulate. Though Though the teachings and legacy of Jesus Christ have always been and remain contested, most prophetic dissenters use his example in their criticisms of American foreign policy and especially empire. The second tradition of dissent is the Republican strand. This philosophy draws on the supposedly democratic and anti-imperial motivation of the rebelling colonists in the American Revolution. The Republican dissenters are far more secular and legalistic than the prophetic. They tend to see the nation's founding documents, notably the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, as the core framework and source of American values. Some take this legalism a bit too far and contend that all contemporary judgments of public policy should be backward-looking and based on the original intent of the founders. This, however, is decidedly problematic, seeing as the founders rarely agreed on much of anything at all, were, nearly to a man, and they were all men, wealthy, 
and were often slaveholders too. The Constitution was nothing if not a compromise between contending special interests, regional concerns, and governmental ideologies. Nonetheless, as a starting institutional framework and evolving through the amendment process, guarantor of public and civil liberties, the Constitution remains a solid, if flawed, touchstone for political dissent. As previously noted, it is the position of most modern historians that the United States was, from the first, a continental settler colonial empire built upon the necessity and a damning reality of native displacement and destruction. Lest we forget, the nation's very Declaration of Independence refers unapologetically to, quote, savage Indians, unquote. Nevertheless, the Constitution, viewed as an adaptational document, can ground the dissenting patriots' rebuke of aggressive militarism and expansionist imperialism, and it often has. The third strand of American descent is the nationalist. Dissent on nationalist grounds generally involves the prioritization of perceived U.S. interests over everything else. National dissent rejects universal or global, that's international law and norms, values. At its worst, nationalist opposition to a given policy can be insular and ethnocentric to the point of conflating Americanism with whiteness or Protestantism and thereby justifying chauvinistic positions. As such, this form of dissent often flares up during periods of large-scale immigration. This takes us to the fourth and final tradition of dissent, the cosmopolitan. In direct opposition to the nationalist strand, this version of principled dissidence recognizes and celebrates the multi-ethnic and interfaith nature of the American body politic and posits the need for internationally accepted values and conduct. Today, cosmopolitan dissenters and the author counts himself among them, judge the advisability, legality, and morality of American wars and general foreign policy on the basis of international law and norms, universal conceptions of human rights and dignity, republican constitutional principles, sound justice, and perceptions of national interest. This clearly most complex and multifaceted tradition of dissent developed over time, and truly gained traction in the aftermath of the catastrophic, norms-shattering Second World War. A republic, however flawed from its inception it may be, is most likely to lose its way, to shred its institutions, and betray its promise through the execution of aggressive wars, militarism, and imperial pretensions. That, after all, is how the Roman Republic died. A republic, it must be said, that the founding generation was quite literally obsessed with. 
descent, like most complex human endeavors, defies simple categorizations. There are many reasons, rarely straightforward, that one might choose to oppose one's government or its policies. Prophetic religious values, Republican principles, national interests, and universal humanist ethics usually combine to inform the dissenter. Such is the intricacy and thus the beauty of the patriotic dissenter. The evolution of the all-volunteer force and the saturation of generals in unelected but vital government positions has had and will continue to have distressing implications for the proud tradition of patriotic American descent. Absent conscription, an uninvolved public majority has opted out of military service or even the imagination of military service, collectively chosen a, a combination of apathy and anemic soldier adulation and opted for the luxury of mostly ignoring foreign affairs or the nation's endless wars. This hasn't boded well for the development of any sort of mass citizens and a war movement Certainly nothing on the scale of the Vietnam era protest. The salient question is what is the missing or added variable today? The absent contemporary variable is the draft. If the mothers of teenage sons had to worry about potential conscription, and if 22-year-old college students nearing graduation had to stare down the prospect of draft eligibility, it's likely a whole lot more international sections of newspapers would be read and plenty of extra students would show up at local anti-war rallies. Sad, isn't it, that one potential solution to less war might just be more military service? The United States, maybe more than ever before, desperately needs a massive, public, empowered, anti-war and anti-imperial descending wave to crash on its shores and across its vast interior. The survival of the Republic, at least of what it aspires to be, may well depend on it. Descent is dangerous. Time and again, the U.S. government has suppressed anything smacking of subversion, especially in times of war, through oppressive legislation. Nonetheless, for all of their often violent enforcement methods, the powers that be have never succeeded in extinguishing the long American tradition of dissent. Although it is undeniable that prominent anti-war dissenters have been oppressed, these true patriots have laid down a foundation for future opposition. These brave folks have demonstrated the inherent value of challenging power in the prevailing status quo. Without them, America wouldn't be able to point to its sizable anti-imperialist movement at the turn of the 20th century or to its mass anti-Vietnam War protests as evidence that its society self-corrects and evolves. More importantly, anti-war activists throughout U.S. history have, in hindsight, been repeatedly proven right, which raises some counterfactuals and shows that other paths were possible. <laughs>
In this reflection on the sin, the voices of alternative patriots rise to the surface. While most history homes in on the victors, quote unquote, of the policy and ethical battles in U.S. foreign affairs, and tells that tale in a linear, almost deterministic manner, from another perspective, the record demonstrates that those very consensus, quote, winners, unquote, were more often than not wrong. Their policies regularly resulted in imperial expansion, human rights violations, countless unnecessary deaths, and the dilution of Republican values and institutions. In this story, it is repeatedly the, quote, losers, unquote, the resistors, who actually had the true national interests and ethical standards at heart. Admittedly, salvation of the national soul will not come from within the two-party system. That structure isn't designed to cultivate meaningful or anti-imperialist dissent. It is little more than an arrangement for the polite rotation of political elites and their wealthy special interest backers in and out of office every two, four, or eight years. The two-party system is not devised for serious structural change or for turning the big ship of state. Since House representatives serve, serve two-year terms and are thus continually running for re-election, the military budget is constitutionally mandated, mandated to be funded annually. Perhaps counterintuitively, these timelines inhibit major changes in American foreign and military policy. Absent term limits, the removal of big money from politics, or the growth of a mass-scale, grassroots, anti-war citizens movement, don't expect big things from what prevails in the Democratic or Republican opposition in Washington. Only a collective commitment to education followed by action has any real hope of exist, excising the rot of militant imperialism from the national soul. This demands, even requires, that no matter how dark the current days, the citizenry decidedly eschew apathy in favor of activism. Despite the economic insecurity and, and inherent busyness of most Americans' lives, the people have no choice if they wish to save themselves or the republic, but to read, study, inform themselves about the corrupt U.S. foreign policy that unfolds in their name. Then this, quote, woke, unquote, populace must demand at the polls and in the streets that not only America's military posture, but also the pageantry patriotism that informs it be completely altered and redefined. If this sounds like a vague or idealistic call to arms, well, it is. It has historical precedent, and honestly, what other choice do we have? In the epilogue, Scherzen says, quote, I'm no dissenting hero. I didn't attend my first protest rally until I was 32 years old, and it wasn't even about an anti-war event. Not directly, at least. I was a few years out of Afghanistan and teaching U.S. history at West Point. Then, Empire, as it always does, 
came home, this time in the form of increasingly militarized and Pentagon-equipped policing in neighborhoods of color across the nation. Thanks to YouTube and social media, pervasive instances of police brutality and the killing of unarmed young black men streamed into public consciousness." Unquote. After leaving West Point, Shershan embarked on what would become the second act of his life, though it wasn't clear to him at the time, being an activist. It started slow in 2017, when, as a student at the U.S. Army's General Command and General Staff College, he was studying formulaic, outmoded, and patently absurd doctrines for planning and executing everything from uh, limited to total wars against politely renamed enemies that bore remarkable resemblance to Russians, Chinese, and Iranians. This was by day. In the evenings, he through ridiculously easy homework assignments, and then turned attention to his books. But now he began to translate what he read, highlighted, wrote, and thought into an increasingly prolific stream of critical articles for publication. At the outset, most of his work critiqued the conduct of America's hopeless wars. Then he shifted to doubts about the efficacy of these conflicts, and finally, vehement opposition to the very justification and morality of these crusades. What began as an article a month in 2017 quickly multiplied to one a week in 2018 and reached an average of 11 a month over the next two years. The range and readership of the publications also expanded. Soon enough, even while on active duty, he began to accept invitations to give speeches and join conference panels. Radio, podcast, and alternative video media interviews also became a regular feature of his life. By the time Shershan medically retired in February 2019, the whole activist and war lifestyle had become more than just a full-time gig. Shershan continues by stating that if one sets emotion aside for a moment, thanks rationally, and is spiritually honest, one must conclusively discern that the three accidental perils Americans face today, their republic, endless war, and their survival, nuclear catastrophe and climate change, can only be curtailed through collective, face-to-face, I-am-my-neighbor's-keeper activism. It matters not whether the participants frame their action through a liberal or conservative, religious or humanist, nationalist or global lens. Given the state of affairs in our country, what matters is pitching in, doing, however modestly, the work. And that demands that today's tribal citizens quit seeking panaceas and pointing fingers at one man, no matter how coarse or abhorrent. No, America's and the world's impending disaster has been a compact, complex collective exercise in which all of us were long, if, if unwittingly, complicit. It has been a bipartisan enterprise and has, since the 9-11 attacks, been the project of three separate presidential administrations, Democratic and Republican. We the people, to invoke the uniquely empowering 
honorific bestowed on the citizenry in the Constitution's preamble help shepherd through our apathy, ignorance, and illusion these existential threats to the Republic and the species to their currently acute state. So because we all bear responsibility, take hope in the fact we do so together as a connected collective. If we want all that we love to survive, lives and liberties alike, we the people must fight back and for our sins, take back the words citizenship, empathy, and especially patriotism. None of this is easy. Dissent rarely is. The decision to do it for the politician and especially the soldier is perilous and weighty. Deciding when it is appropriate or even morally obligatory to turn against the policies of one's government is a complex matter. Shershon concludes by asking the reader to consider his book, A Clarion Call, a desperate plea for his peers and the citizenry writ large to reframe their conceptions of dissent as patriotism and take action. The best way to end these wars and the civil-military divide that permits them is to bridge the gap ourselves. Thank you for listening. We welcome your comments. Our email address is vfp168 at veteransforpeace.org. or Facebook at Veterans for Peace 168. You have been listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour here on Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5 FM Louisville, Kentucky. We have enjoyed our time with you today and look forward to having you back sometime soon. Please join us on the path to peace and nonviolence. We can imagine a world without war, and no matter what the journey is, it will always begin with the first step. For more information, please go to veteransforpeace168.org or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening.